real estate's a desirable asset class uh, for um, a great many investors, for life companies in particular, it is inherently long dated. Uh, it is uh, has inflation protection characteristics from the perspective that you're able to reprice uh, your product periodically. Apartments, obviously, every year, hotels every night, office buildings maybe every three to five years. And lastly, it's income-oriented. So we think it's pretty desirable for investors generally and insurance companies specifically. That was John Ockerbloom, co-head of U.S. Real Estate at Bearings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and today we're talking commercial real estate for insurance investors. My guests today are Ann Bryant, head of insurance solutions at Bearings, and John Ockerbloom, co-head of U.S. Real Estate at Bearings. In this conversation, we go deep on investing in commercial real estate from the perspective of an insurance investor. Specifically, we talk about the current state of real estate markets after two years of COVID, including sectors that are more or less attractive today. Uh, We also talk about the nuances for insurance investors to consider as they make allocations to real estate debt and real estate equity, uh, from capital charges and accounting treatments to the vehicles these investors are using to actually access the market. And finally, we get into the dramatically increased role that ESG is playing at the property level, at the portfolio level and for insurance investors as they make their own allocation decisions. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Ann Bryant and John Ockerblum. All right, Ann Bryant, John Ockerblum, welcome to Streaming Income. Thank you, Greg. It's good to be here. Thanks, Greg. Very excited to have you both here and very excited to talk about real estate, especially from an insurance investor perspective. So I want to get into a lot of the kind of unique factors that insurance investors need to consider in their allocations to this asset class. But maybe before we get into that, John, I'd like to pose a kind of high level question for you. Can you just set the stage for us in terms of where we are today from a commercial real estate uh, perspective, from a from a kind of fundamental view? Sure. So um, it's been an interesting couple of years, as you know, as COVID has changed how we think about commercial real estate in many ways. But a lot of the same themes remain coming out of COVID, and and, uh, hopefully we're coming out of COVID uh, for good. Um, What I would say is that uh, a handful of trends that I think are worth noting. Um, Assets are expensive. Uh, This is not different for us than it is for uh, a lot of uh, asset classes, um, but I would say particularly within the most desirable asset classes within real estate, industrial, apartments, and other, um, prices are at all-time highs. And yield acceptance levels, to think of it in the opposite uh, manner, are at all-time lows. So, for example, best quality industrial assets are trading uh, at cap rates inside of 3%, meaning that if I'm paying $100 for the asset, I'm earning less than $3 of return on that uh, investment. That's an historically low level. And when you think about the uh, real estate is of its nature a long-dated asset, it's a fairly modest premium against the risk-free rate mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. over time historically. Um, why is that? Well, the answer is that, um, to get back to my example, um, there is an expectation there will be rent growth over time. Um, and so therefore the numerator of that equation is going to go up. So if rents double, now I'm earning $6 for the every hundred that I put to work. 
um, and my return uh, is going up meaningfully. So there is an expectation of rental growth. There is something of a barbelling of demand um, among asset classes. As I said, industrial has been extremely popular. Um, a handful of other asset classes that are resonant with investors. Um, life science has been uh, a very strong uh, asset class that we've uh, spent a lot of time in mm -hmm, uh, at mm -hmm. bearings. A handful of other asset classes are out of favor. So uh, retail, as an example, has been somewhat out of favor. Hotels um, have had uh, sort of a roller coaster ride depending upon the assets. Uh, drive to leisure hotels from an operation standpoint absolutely crashed in the second quarter of 2020, uh, snapped back later in 2020 and had as strong a year as they've had uh, in many years in 2021. So um, it's an evolving market. Um, from a debt standpoint, the yields uh, uh, available have been under pressure. But what I would say has not really changed. Um, the quality of loan books uh, has remained very consistent. So the advance rates have not uh, expanded meaningfully. The quality of the assets that are being lent against has remained consistent. Mm -hmm. um, and that really goes for traditional assets, um, as well as areas like, for example, affordable housing. Affordable housing is an area that Barings has devoted a lot of attention to, particularly on the debt side, because there's an opportunity to do well while doing good. So to summarize, real estate's a desirable asset class for a great many investors. For life companies in particular, it is inherently long dated. Uh, it is, uh, has inflation protection characteristics from the perspective that you're able to reprice uh, your product periodically. Apartments, obviously, every year, hotels every night, office buildings maybe every three to five years. And lastly, it's income-oriented. So we think it's pretty desirable for investors generally and insurance companies specifically. That's great. That's great. Thank you for that overview. There's a lot there. There's a lot that I want to come back to and, and unpack and go go into more detail on, including some of the inflation stuff, including uh, I'm really intrigued by uh, what you're talking about on the affordable housing side as well. Um, so a lot to come back to there. Um, maybe before we do that, and I'd like to turn to you and just ask you a little bit about how insurance investors have traditionally um, allocated to real estate and that role it's played in their portfolios, and then maybe how that is changing over time. Yes. So so real estate is a broad category. Uh, the, on the real estate debt side, commercial mortgage loans have been a pretty core part of insurance company portfolios for some time now. And we've seen a slow uptick there. That, And, and even companies that haven't previously invested in commercial mortgage loans, they are getting into that space now. Uh, and, and the capital is very favorable there. So, you know, I think I think they have a well-established place in the portfolio. On the real estate equity side, it depending on how the investment is accessed, it can go on to schedule A, not to get too technical mm -hmm. here, but We can get a little bit okay. yeah, we, we really like the technical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, as a direct real estate investment mm -hmm. or it can mm -hmm. go on to schedule BA as a joint venture or fund investment. Okay. Um and, and so it also though because real estate equity is an equity investment, it typically is part of the surplus portfolio rather than the liability backing kind of portfolio. So it is often in the same bucket as private equity, high yield, fixed income, and, and those types of investments. Uh, real estate equity, uh, as you may know, the NEIC just recently changed the capital requirements for real estate equity for both Schedule A assets and for Schedule BA assets. On Schedule A, the requirement is going from 15% down to 11%. And on 
on Schedule BA, it's going from 23% down to 13%, so mm. very meaningful. Mm. This applies only for live companies. For property casualty companies, those requirements are 10% and 20% respectively, and th that is not changing. Okay. So this is just for live companies. And and the reason why the, the change occurred, or really what, what prompted it, is that the ACLI put forth a proposal a few years ago, and they've been pushing this. It, the proposal changed over time, but, but they demonstrated that the factors should be lowered to be more commensurate with the risk. So they demonstrated that the risk is not as high as the capital factors would have indicated mm -hmm, previously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it's it's all a very good story. Yeah, yeah. Interesting that, that, that a lot's changing and maybe making it even more favorable for insurance investors to, to allocate to the space. How about in terms of how people are actually investing in the space structurally? I mean, I know there's different types of vehicles, whether it's funds or JVs. What are you seeing on that front? It really depends, and it depends on the access that a particular insurance company would have to those investments. So, so it, uh, funds are, are probably more common for the majority of companies, but larger companies would access the investment either directly and owning the entire property or as a joint venture with mm -hmm. a partner or, or multiple partners uh, at, at working with potentially an asset manager or even originating themselves within their own company. Got it, got it. And I know we mentioned we might get a little bit technical here. Um, speaking of that, uh, just on the accounting side, I'm curious, uh, how are these investments treated and in, in, are there any changes, I guess, on that front? So, so it's something to be aware of, uh, just that the accounting is different from other assets. And so for companies that are first-time investors in this asset to do some groundwork to understand how the, how the income emerges and how the changes in value occur, under U.S. GAAP, uh, there are choices. So can either take the fair value approach where the fair value is shown on the balance sheet and then changes in the, the fair value flow through income or can take a depreciation approach where the uh, value of the property is depreciated over time. And that depreciation flows through income along with income on the actual property. So that, that creates variable income. And then at the point of sale of the property, that generates a gain. And unlike other types of gains that insurance companies may be familiar with, that gain actually does flow through income as well. So that creates a, a large kind of lump of variable income. So, you know, it's just something to consider as to how that works. And then also in terms of the size of the portfolio, the larger the portfolio, and then maybe, you know, having a sale per quarter or a sale per year or however those sales mm -hmm, come mm -hmm. about does then generate a more stable variable income mm -hmm. for the portfolio. And it's been a real yield enhancer. And, and just to mention here too, Schedule BA type assets have grown. Insurance companies have been investing more in those types of assets in total. And that would include private equity, real estate equity, and other assets um, that would fit into kind of an other category. So that, that has grown as insurance companies have gotten more familiar with that variable aspect and comfortable with it, and also just the search for yield and the need need to achieve a higher yield target. Um, I, I guess along this line, too, I would ask a question of, of John in terms of how real estate sales are timed or how you know when it is the right time to sell a property. Great question. Um, so we undertake a buy-sell-hold analysis every day. Um, generally speaking, what we're doing is we are looking at um, what's the forward picture of 
a performance for this particular asset uh, over the next five-year period, seven-year period, 10-year period, um, the logical hold period of the particular investor. Um, what purpose does it serve within the portfolio? How is it um, uh, performing relative to expectation? But more importantly, it's really the forward picture. Uh, and so if we believe that there is greater opportunity available to us in the market than what we believe to be the forward performance of this particular asset, taking account of risk, right? We know the asset that we own. It's speculative around the asset that we would uh, purchase. And frictional cost, which is an important piece of the puzzle. Um, ultimately, we make a decision on buy, sell, or hold. Um, discipline around those decisions um, is a critically important component of good real estate investing. I would say it's a pretty favorable market from a sales standpoint. So for stabilized assets, you know, I think we're looking more expansively around sale uh, opportunity. We have a more open mind, um, recognizing that we have to redeploy the proceeds into something. Um, so you got to be cautious. But um, we think that there's interesting opportunity um, in, in the areas that I discussed. You know, it's 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 efficient portfolio theory and and uh, uh, really client by client determining. Um, you know, what do we need to provide for them, and then how does that overlay with what we see as market conditions? Along this line, too, could you? I, I know we touched on it just briefly, but could you talk a little bit more about the the core part of the real estate equity market, mm -hmm. and and then the value add, and what that what that really means, and, sure. and and then how you know the timing of sales would kind of go along with that? Sure. Um, so let me step back and start with so the range of real estate investment opportunities starts at core, meaning the most ostensibly predictable income uh, and lowest risk. Uh, which is generally stabilized assets that are performing, um, you know, 90 plus percent occupied assets in traditional markets that you would consider. Generally speaking, it's considered to be kind of the mainstream asset classes, though that definition is evolving. So you're seeing an expansion over the past uh, handful of years of what is core, what can be core. So things like student housing, things like storage um, have sort of become core where historically they were of their nature. Uh, not really eligible for core consideration. Uh, and by core, you know, we think kind of seeking seven to nine percent total return at a modest leverage level, a fairly substantial chunk of that being from income uh, and the balance being in uh, appreciation over time. Um, on the far end of the spectrum is opportunistic. Uh, opportunistic is maybe development, maybe redevelopment, maybe repositioning uh, of an asset. So core, seeking 7 to 9% total return, half or more of that being in income and the remainder in appreciation, opportunistic, um, generally seeking high teens to up into the 20s, um, with most of that coming on the back end. In other words, it's, it is buy or build, um, lease up, stabilize, sell, generally speaking. Um, value add is a step down from opportunistic, more, you know, let's call that return profile I'll be wide and say sort of 12 to 16%. Again, not excessive leverage, but it, it won't be 30 or 35% leverage as you would see in the core space. Maybe it's, you know, 50 to 60% leverage um, against the portfolio and seeking to get those mid-teens uh, returns. Uh, generally speaking, what winds up happening is you have a handful of deals that outperform and a handful of deals that perform in the lower teens and they blend to that level. Of the nature of value-add investing, that's an, you know the portfolio effect is an important piece of the puzzle. So um, interestingly, um, if you were to buy a portfolio of core assets and put leverage on them, external leverage, so you were to buy a, a handful of fund positions and lever them externally on your own balance sheet, um, 
that levered return um, very closely approximates what you're able to produce in value add. So there's a lot mm. of there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. Um, there's a lot of academic research around this, which would cause your head to hit the desk because of boredom. Um, but there's a lot of academic uh, research. I'm an actuary. It would take a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's interesting. I mean, there's opportunity in, in real estate equity across the spectrum. But generally speaking, the equity side um, for insurance companies is an alpha generator, uh, and uh, the debt side is 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 beta solid income steady. Very uh, modest risk. Yeah, yeah. Just a cu- just a couple items to chime in on there, and and within the portfolio context for an insurance company, real estate debt and also real estate equity uh, takes advantage of the ability for insurance companies to buy illiquid assets. So I think it's just very important to emphasize that, and that these assets, the insurer would not want to be a forced seller of any of these assets. Need to be able to hold to an, to a good point, either to maturity for the mm-hmm. debt or for the equity to a point where there's an attractive price. And it's a and it's a great look. It's a great point, and it's one of the you know there are deals that we do for insurance style clients um, that are not as well suited for fast in out uh, other investors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does make for an advantage for insurance companies the ability to hold through cycles, because real estate is absolutely cyclical, particularly on the equity side. The ability to hold through cycles, the ability to have longer duration, the ability to create value over time. Um, I think it's a great attribute of real estate, but if you are in a short-form fund structure, it can be challenging. Mm-hmm. Just, just one other point. You had mentioned on the debt side, the three to five year floating rate nature. That is true of a portion of it, but it's also true that that a portfolio could be structured around a client's needs, that it could be fixed, that many CMLs, especially that life insurers invest in, are tend to be a little bit longer, like a 10-year with a fixed coupon, um, and, and a make-all premium, too, if there is a prepayment. Uh, absolutely. I expect that, to your point, as we look into an ascending rate environment, you're going to see more uh, borrowers, more uh, equity investors like us. I mean, look, we're participants in the debt market. So we have to think about this um, every day. Um, more recently, we've been doing floating rate and hedging the uh, risk-free rate. Um, but I do expect that we will see greater demand for fixed rate product among the users. And you can certainly see why you'd want uh, that exposure from an insurance company standpoint. So it's a very fair point. Mm-hmm. Now, Anne, you're speaking with uh, Bearings insurance investor clients uh, on a very regular basis. I'm curious, you know, everything that we've talked about in terms of the risk return spectrum, are you seeing any changes or any developments there in terms of um, the types of assets from a risk perspective that insurance companies are investing in today? So, so the the trends are continuing. Uh, the, the long term trends that we're seeing, and that is the move to more illiquid assets, as we've talked about. Just that there is capacity in insurance portfolios to do that, um, and then also looking to this variable variable income types of assets. I, I think too that the trade off with the return and the capital varies by by company, and the way that that is viewed varies too. So if you think about trying to optimize the yield versus capital, that's one kind of lens. If you if you think about the uh, yield net of capital, just considering the cost of capital, which differs for every company, that that is an, another lens. And then if you just think of capital constraint as a, an absolute bucket of capital, like total amount of capital, and you could spend that capital um, th- in an absolute sense, that is another way to look at it. And I think Speaking of real estate equity, it comes out favorably in all of those views, especially with the NAIC change. Um, and so comparing for, to private equity, for example, now the capital requirement is considerably 
slightly lower. So even if the return, if like in core property um, or or, um, value add, even if the return is slightly lower than what could be achieved in private equity, the capital uh, is a pretty big incentive to consider real estate equity. So are you expecting, for instance, to see larger allocations in value add equity compared to history over the next couple of years? Yes, but insurance companies do move slowly. Mm. So, you know, but I think it will trend up. Okay, okay. We're seeing that in terms of the overall number of conversations we're having with life companies in particular uh, around our value-add opportunities. Hmm. Um, And so we certainly expect it. We're paying attention to the ongoing demand drivers and, and in the product creation end of things. You know, we have very much in mind insurance channel and and their needs on a look forward basis. What are the things? What are the goals they're trying to accomplish? What are the risks they're seeking to mitigate? Um, and how can we create product that is tailored specifically to to serve those ends? That makes sense. Um, another big uh, structural shift in the market has been uh, a massive focus on ESG in recent years. And of course, you know, almost every episode of streaming income these days, we're talking about ESG, whether we're talking to our emerging markets team or our high yield team or talking about um, what we're talking about today, uh, real estate for insurance investors. So tell me a little bit, John, I'm curious, uh, just from the real estate perspective, how uh, ESG has kind of impacted the way you and the team are investing today and maybe what you think uh, could change or further develop going forward. Sure. So ESG has been a part of the thought process for real estate investing in bearings for, I won't say ever, but for a long time. Um, you know, there's really a couple of ways to think about it. One is offensive. Um, you know, It so happens that sound environmental stewardship very frequently translates to enhanced NOI, right? So if I create better lighting, Uh, that costs me less to operate. Um, I'm reducing my carbon footprint and I'm enhancing my NOI because my replacement cost of bulbs is lesser. If I use low-flow toilets, if I use, um, you know, sinks that are uh, automatic shutoff, if I have automatic lighting on a floor-by-floor basis um, that draws less power, if I use solar, et cetera. So there is a harmony um, to a point with respect to certainly the E and ESG on the real estate equity side. If I think about from a a social and governance standpoint, I would say that that's more rapidly evolving. Um, You know, bearings as a whole is evolving around ESG and and the market is evolving. Uh, You know, if you think five years ago, the market was uh, for ESG, it was uh, very focused on exclusion, meaning what will we not do and what can we demonstrate to you that we will not do? And if we don't do those things, then you can check the box that we're socially responsible. I think there are certainly industries that we don't support, but more so it's what are you doing, right? Specifically, what are you measuring? Um, Where are you improving? Um, And what steps are you taking to incorporate ESG into the ethos of your investing architecture? So I talked a little bit about the opportunity from a risk standpoint. We pay attention, I'll just pick one data point. We pay attention to sea level rise as a potential risk, right? If you think from for, for millennia, the most valuable real estate on earth um, has been closest to water sources. Uh, and, and that remains true today from Miami to Boston to European countries and Hong Kong. Um, well, we are focused on sea level rise for obvious reasons. The cost of operation is meaningfully greater if the sea is intruding upon you, the foundation of your asset, the risks of stability of the asset over time. In addition, things like nuisance flooding and access uh, to the asset. Mm-hmm. So not just is this asset affected, but are the thoroughfares surrounding that area 
I think of Superstorm Sandy as an example of that, right? Where downtown Manhattan was just inaccessible from a subway standpoint for some material uh, number of weeks. So we think about it from an offensive standpoint. We think about it from a defensive standpoint. I think from an evolution standpoint, the next thing that we're going to see is a real discussion around net zero. Um, and that's going to take uh, a couple of forms. Number one, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a jockeying for a standard that will be applied by the plurality. I don't know if we'll ever get to a majority, but maybe we get to a majority. So I think net zero is what you're going to hear a lot about. Um, and the standard of what that means, how do you get there, when do you get there, I think will be uh, will, will occupy as much space um, over the next 10 years uh, as anything. I think sometimes uh, insurers and other investors have been slower to move into ESG or, or cautious because they do view it as maybe a, a give up of return. Mm-hmm. With real estate, you can draw the line so directly, though. So I think it's just a good point to emphasize that there's such a connection between the things that are good for the environment and, and also for return. I think that um, investors will do well to really understand where ESG fits, the desirability of the asset and its ESG characteristics, I think is going to become more relevant over time. Yeah. And just a quick programming note for our listeners. Um, John's book about sea level rise, your team has put pen to paper and, and put out a really great great piece from memory. I think it's called Keeping Real Estate Portfolios Afloat Amidst Rising Sea Levels, which I would definitely encourage folks to, to check out if they want to look at some of the detailed analysis. 100%. We focus on sea level because it's measurable. In other words, we can sort of measure if the impact, if this, then that, if sea level rises by X number of inches, what does that do with respect to the population of assets that are within that affected area? Uh, and, uh, you know, look at an area like lower Manhattan, look at an area, you know, other areas of the country. Um, it's not to say that assets don't have value there. It just means you got to be smart about how you uh, select your asset about how you employ mitigation strategies. I just recently came from a hotel that we own in the Florida portfolio uh, in the infrastructure uh, to prevent flooding and to mitigate um, against risk is very considerable. Um, if it were not, it would be an asset that would be meaningfully less desirable. So we've made that investment over time. Um, and I think you just have to be forward thinking and saying, where are we effectively mitigating risk at a reasonable cost? And where are we taking advantage of the opportunities to grow our income and making buildings that people want to be in? Ultimately, that's it. We want to create assets that people want to be in, in whatever asset class that we're in, whether that's you know, solar panels on the top of an industrial building because it's an alternative source of income that doesn't correlate to what's below, or whether it's you know making a, a more green apartment for a 23-year-old kid that has a concern about where his planet or her planet is going to be 15 years from now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's lots of opportunity for sure. And, and and as you said, it's it's maybe you know thinking about ESG, maybe it's more a little bit more tangible when we look at real estate specifically. But if you think about from an insurance uh, investors' perspective, where are they on this kind of ESG journey, and, and where do you think they go next? Yeah, so so ESG, it's it's been talked about for a long time. I think insurance companies are moving forward, definitely. Uh, that many insurance companies now have an ESG policy or policies in place, but it involves more than just the investment portfolio. It's also the sales practices and and aspects of insurance that involve the customer. So making insurance available uh, for everyone and the sales practices and so forth. And the NEIC has also been involved in those types of aspects of insurance. Uh, and then on the on the property casualty side, it's the climate risk and how it's actually affecting claims. So that's that's another aspect. On the investment front, I 
I do think, too, that insurance companies were waiting for a set of rules or waiting for some specific definition, which, as John said, it, it really is not going that way. It's more of a, of a view of insurers coming together, investors coming together, and maybe even taking their own uh, specific approach like net zero or emphasizing something, some aspect of ESG rather than uh, trying to do everything. Um, it, it's different also than in Europe where they have there there are standards in place now and there's reporting that will be required on ESG. The United States has not moved to that, but I the insurance industry will be a big influencer of ESG going forward. And so it's it's also not just about what is today. So a company may not have everything that they need for ESG or or you know, it may not look like a, an investment that is ESG friendly, but large investors like insurance companies can influence corporations to move towards something that is ESG friendly. So it's more than just coming up with a list and exclusions. It's being an influencer uh, for ESG in, in the broader market. Uh, along those lines, I'm curious, are you seeing more proactive investment from insurance investors, for instance, in places like affordable housing? Yes, yes. And affordable housing is something that really checks all of the boxes. Mm. So as John was saying, it's it's a good returning asset. It it uh, is beneficial to society. It is something that will be even more important as we see inflation on the horizon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's something that is very much supported by the ACLI. So it's it's a very visible way to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you mentioned um, European standards and their swifter evolution in terms of um, ESG, and I think that's a useful point for us to talk a little bit about um, our sort of global platform within Bearings Real Estate. Um, so I work uh, in the U.S. predominantly and, and on the equity side. Um, we have a very considerable European business, uh, as you know, and I will say one of the more gratifying things about um, the integrated sort of platform uh, and the very close relationship that we share um, is to see how trends evolve. Um, and so, um, you know, our Asian exposure gave us an early view toward what COVID might do over time as the pandemic moved uh, to the West. So by the time it hit the U.S., we'd seen it in real live examples within two economies or two uh, regions within which we operate, and we could have a sense. So we were ahead in the U.S. in terms of our preparation at bearings. You know, we had teams ready to be deployed to uh, measure collections. We had um, you know, tenant outreach. We had, you know, from an asset management standpoint, could be very proactive. Um, there are other areas, for example, um, you know, the evolution of retail has been a trend that really sort of had its uh, early stages in the U.S. and really um, that sort of spread to uh, Europe or apartments. Apartments uh, have been much more widely adopted in the U.S. and that is, you know, it's progressing um, uh, in Europe. Self-storage, another example. Um, I would say ESG is an area where um, the lessons are coming the other way. Mm-hmm. So European investors are much more intensely focused on ESG uh, than domestic investors as a whole. There's examples, of course, everywhere. Um, but we watch the experience that our team in Europe, which is you know outstanding, uh, have, and it demonstrates to us what we can reasonably expect over time. It'll never be the same, and there's no one size fits all, right? An investor in a particular region may have different uh, requirements or standards with respect to ESG than others, but it is the future for sure. And, uh, you know, so we think that, you know, our objective is to be flexible insofar as we need to meet our investors' objectives. Um, I think we want to be authentic. Um, and so greenwashing is the term that you hear, you know, are we just taking steps 
um, I'll say to check a box, but are we taking steps from a marketing standpoint or are we taking- Form over substance. Form over substance, right? We want to be substantive. We want to be authentic. And lastly, we want to be sort of forward thinking. We want to help define how we measure and take uh, effective steps with respect to that. We've invested a lot in architecture for measurement, um, which is a little appreciated piece of the puzzle. But if you don't have it, you can't conform to any standard um, that evolves. So I think it's going to be a big piece of the asset management picture on a look forward basis. Um, with regard to ESG, also, it just we, we were discussing about how Europe is ahead of the United States and how they've rolled out reporting standards and so forth. I do think there are pros and cons to that. It's pushing the whole industry in Europe, and they they have advanced more. In the United States, though, too, I, I think that because the industry is embracing it uh, and taking and it's taking different forms depending on the company, there are advantages to that as well. Mm. And and the uniform reporting standard that is being rolled out can be very expensive to implement, mm-hmm. and it sometimes can be form over substance. So I, I think there are pros and cons. So even though the U.S. is maybe behind in some ways, I, I think that in the long run, it may turn out very well. Well, that will certainly be a trend that I think all of us will be monitoring for, for years to come. Um, well, as we wind up to the end of this conversation, which uh, I've certainly learned a lot from, um, I'd like to ask you both kind of what you'll be watching, uh, let's say over the next 12, 24 months um, in terms of how these markets are going to develop and then maybe what investors might want to keep an eye on. John, maybe I'll start with you from the from the real estate side. Sure. Uh, I'm looking at a handful of things. The risk-free rate is a big part of my analysis, right? And again, I go back to the industrial asset that trades for a 275 cap rate. Um, What's that asset worth if the risk-free rate is 50 basis points, right? And I'll use the 10-year treasury as a risk-free rate proxy. Um, What if it's 150? What if it's 350, right? Am I as enthusiastic about my 275 coupon that I've purchased this asset for, right? To go back to my example, I paid $100 for this asset, and it's producing $2.75 of income every year. Um, I better believe that I'm going to be able to get meaningful rent growth over time, which in fact is the thesis behind industrial. Um, but if the risk-free rate you know, moves in, in real significant fashion, I think we could see an important need uh, to adjust expectation with respect to return. Um, so I would say the risk-free rate is one piece of the puzzle. Um, the other one that I would say is the continuing evolution of life science, which we think is overall very favorable. Um, and that uh, business uh, continues to evolve. The question is, where are the next emerging nodes of excellence? I mean, you have to be in clusters where there are multiple participants in the market. So you think about places like San Francisco, Cambridge, Massachusetts, obviously, San Diego, California, but there's been others that have emerged and that have become interesting. Philadelphia, for example, is one area that's become interesting. Raleigh, Durham. Um, and so we're looking at, all right, well, where is the next, where are the next uh, areas that we think are uh, areas for opportunity? So, um, so risk-free rate, um, expansion of uh, life science. And then I would say beyond that, I, I'm very interested in looking at the evolution of retail and the ability to uh, potentially uh, find our way back uh, into that asset mm. class over time in a way that institutional investors have really not wanted to do in the past two years, but really probably for several years before that um, is another area that may be of interest. This is great. You're giving me all the ideas for all the, our upcoming uh, podcast episodes because I want to dive so much deeper. It's what we're into, here for. Yeah. <laughs> I want to dive so much deeper into the STEM stuff and into the retail. The retail seems quite um, 
uh, non-consensus, I guess I would say. So, hundred yeah. percent. And and you know, look, real estate. We say, what what what? Why is real estate good? Inflation protected, long dated, durable. There's also an opportunity for alpha. Good assets outperform bad assets, and so there are inefficiencies and there are differences of opinion. Um, so, what do you want? You want to enhance your decision making skills. So that over time, you make better decisions than your competitors. That's our objective. Last year, we wrote a piece about commercial mortgage loans. And, and the, the title of it was really, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And it's something that you alluded to earlier as well. But, but really, all real estate is local. So making that decision, whether it's retail or, or anything else, understanding that macro trends affect real estate and affect the markets, still that decision is, or real estate is really, that value is at the local level. And I, I think that would very much be true with retail in particular. Um, and we're going to give you the last word here. So uh, kind of same question for you, uh, but maybe just more from an insurance perspective. What are you going to be keeping an eye on over the next 12 to 18 months? Well, really, John hit on it too, the, the rates, uh, that inflation, wh- how big how big will inflation get? How, where will rates go? That affects everything that insurance companies do, uh, not just on the investment side, but also on the in the annuity market, depending on what types of products they offer. So the more attractive the credited rate can be that they offer, and that's based on what they are able to invest in, the, the higher their annuity sales may go. Mm-hmm. So so it's it, it has an implication on both sides, the liability side and mm-hmm. the asset mm-hmm. side. So inflation is a, a big piece of, of what we'll be we watching. And then I think also this emergence out of COVID, finally, that it seems like it's on the horizon, mm-hmm. but we've thought that before. <laughs> <laughs> How will that really go? It's yeah, COVID has had uh, other implications too for insurance companies. It's, it's definitely shown the need for life insurance of course, yeah. and has helped that grow. So looking at that, and then uh, the other big macro trend that is con- continuing is uh, mergers and acquisitions and reinsurance of uh, closed blocks. Um, so anticipate that that will continue as well. And that then also influences the investment market and it changes the competition for direct writing insurers as well and and just increases the need for them to find assets that enhance the yield of their portfolio. Well, listen, you've both given me a ton to think about and, uh, and helped me understand what's going on in this space. So I appreciate that. I hope the same is true for our listeners. Um, we've covered a lot of ground uh, and I think it's been incredibly valuable. So thank you both for your time. John, appreciate it. And thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks for listening to episode number two of season six of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.